Hi, welcome into the DuckTerritory.com podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is to the right of me in a car. This is a car cast, <laughs> everybody. We were sitting in a car doing a podcast on the drive back from Morgan's loss at Washington. Yeah, we decided to do the podcast a little early uh, this week because we've got a long drive uh, back from Seattle to Eugene, uh, and that gives us plenty of time to talk about Oregon's 38-3 to loss to the Washington Huskies uh, up in Seattle. Second straight win for the Huskies in this series. Uh, I guess the Ducks can hang their hats on that they've won 12 of the last 14. <laughs> There's a way to spin it. <laughs> uh, but... This was a game that started off where, quite honestly, it was going about as perfect as possible for Oregon. They got the ball first, and they marched right down the field for a 15-play, 62-yard drive that, that took seven minutes. Yeah. yeah, they took off almost the entire first. They took off half the first quarter on that opening drive, and you kind of looked up and felt like, with the exception of the fact that it ended with the Aiden Schneider field goal yeah, that's what a I was touchdown, say. it was perfect. I mean, they... they they marched the ball down. I don't think there was a single negative play. Um, Burmeister was three for three throwing the ball. I think he for about twenty yards. They, Freeman had some big chunk plays. They converted three straight third down conversions, and, and hey, maybe this game's going to be competitive after all. And then Washington comes down and, and misses a field goal. Oregon gets the ball back. Basically, does the exact same thing. Moves it right down the field. Gets the ball right to about the same place that the first drive stopped. And then Kenai Benoit gets hurt on a play. Yeah, and that, and that, that unfortunately, not only the injury, but the fact that he fumbles there, I think completely flips, maybe not the final outcome, but at least the margin, kind of the, the way the game proceeded after that, kind of on its head. Absolutely, because Oregon was dominating up front. Uh, Washington really hadn't shown up until that point uh, in the game a solution of stopping Oregon. It, I yeah. mean, it wasn't like Oregon was converting crazy third down conversions to get first downs. They were getting four, five, six yards every play. I think they were averaging almost seven yards a play their first two drives. And the third downs got into when – when Oregon faced third downs, they were in positions of, you know, what we were talking about pregame. You need to have short third downs, third downs where you can run the ball to have a chance to get the first down, third and three, third and two, third and one. Those were the types of third downs they were facing. They were converting them because, believe it or not, this Oregon team is actually pretty good at converting – short yardage third downs. It's just yeah. when they have to throw the ball with Burmeister. Uh, and then, like you said, that fumble, uh, it was wild because the Huskies picked it up and returned it all the way to, I think, the, the Oregon 18. But uh, because of a personal foul penalty on the return, early on in the return by the Huskies, and then a personal foul penalty on Dylan Mitchell. Not sure what, what Dylan Mitchell even and did. After the play, I think he hit somebody. I don't know. I didn't see it. Uh, but that kind of also negated the, 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 the return offsetting penalties and uh, basically a 60-ish yard return turned into a two-yard return. And yeah. the Huskies took over at the 18 and from at, of their own 18. And then from there, uh, things got ugly pretty quickly for, for this Oregon team yeah. because the Huskies went right down the field, uh, 10 plays, 68 yards, about four and a half minutes of time. And they kicked a field goal. And you walk away thinking, okay, Oregon, Oregon's defense held. They were, they were firm. They're still in this thing. They can move the ball. But then they went three and out. Uh, and Willie Tiger said this week he had no problem punting to Dante Pettis, and I think he probably would take that comment I, back. Well, you, you think he would regret it, but then they well they punted Dante Pettis. He returns it for his ninth career punt return touchdown, which is a new NCAA record. So clearly, this is a guy you. 
probably shouldn't be punting to, but they punted to him that instance, and then I think four other times throughout the game, and didn't really learn from the lesson, but unfortunately he didn't take another one back, but that to me was the backbreaker when yep. that play took, you know, took place. I think you feel like Oregon's comfortable playing either from ahead or in a, in a tie ball game. Once they get behind something, the flip kind of switches there. They know they're not capable of throwing the football because you look back at those first two drives, not only were they moving the football, they were doing it almost entirely on the ground against the number two rated rush defense. I think they had, after one quarter, more yards gained than Washington's average. Freeman almost had it by himself. Yeah, Freeman had over 100 yards, I think, on the first drive of the second half, and and Washington had not allowed a 100-yard rusher. Just kind of an indication of how much success they had doing it. But I felt like once that punt return took place, Oregon's game plan sort of shifted, and I'm not sure if that was maybe just mental of, okay, here we go again, or are we going to blow this one? And unfortunately they did. Or was it something that Washington started sensing there that the confidence was shaken and they started kind of figuring out what Oregon was doing? Either way, I think Oregon gained like 114 yards on their next seven drives and really rarely moved it past midfield. And when they did, they, they had a couple more turnovers and yeah, well, really kind of what, not much resistance. The Dante Pettis return for a touchdown was the first – strike that drew blood from Oregon and then the fatal blow the knockout punch if you will uh, was or- was Washington's next possession because uh, they go up 10-3 to and you can sit there and say well UW's offense hasn't scored yet and you know things are going pretty well for Oregon still all things considered they're still in this game having to play from behind but seeing how well they've played to this point maybe, maybe they can string together some positive plays they go three and out second straight drive uh, Adam Stack, this time line drive punt. Pettis gets tackled right when he returns it. Two plays into UW's drive. Uh, Levon Coleman goes 34 yards. Or Miles, Gas- Miles Gaskin, sorry. Yeah. yeah, 34 yards on a fake reverse where there was three ducks on the left side of the field to, to stop it. The cornerback be- basically being the safety valve, last man there takes himself out of position because he bit on the reverse yeah. and the two linebackers are, are already outflanked and don't have the speed to, to close the gap and Gaskin goes in for a touchdown. The next thing you know, just like that, a game that Oregon was feeling like they were in control of, dictating the pace, leading 3-0, has been flipped upside down, and the Ducks are now trailing 17-3. to yeah. And they go into half trailing 17-3. to I mean, I, I guess the positive there is Washington scored with about four or five minutes to go in, in the second quarter, and you know things didn't get worse from there. Um, but at the same time, they go in at halftime, trailing seventeen to three, and it's already kind of looking like I don't know if this team can muster fifteen points to to find a way to win this football game. And then the third quarter from hell happened. Well, yeah, and, and it's worth mentioning that. Washington scores three touchdowns in the third quarter to completely blow the game open at that point. I mean, honestly, once Oregon gets down 14 points, my confidence level that they're going to be able to score enough to win is is very, very small. Then they give up three touchdowns in that third quarter, and they're all explosion plays. I mean, all all four of Washington's touchdowns were 30 yards or more. And, you know, this season we've seen times where Oregon defensively has been able to – force teams to kind of go the length of the field, force them to, you know, to to make some plays. This is a case where Washington just had big play after big play after big play, a number of different guys being involved, all four touchdowns by different players. 
and it, it was ugly, and, and there were missed tackles all over the place. You know, the LeVon Coleman touchdown was kind of a Michael Dyer 2.0 play where yep. three guys looked like they were in position to tackle him, ended up rolling over a guy. Somehow his knee didn't touch the ground. He goes in for a touchdown. 31-yard screen pass for a touchdown. And, and you know, and Dante Pettis beat a guy deep for a touchdown. A freshman Salvan Ahmed just raced down the side. One play. Just And, that, and, and at that point, the game's over. And, yep. But it, it was... It was one of those things where you felt like in the first half, the way the defense was performing, maybe they could keep the score low enough where the Oregon offense could kind of hold serve and get something going. But just giving up that many explosive plays for touchdowns, you're basically, with the way this Oregon offense is playing, you're not going to win football games by that way. I think early in the third quarter when... Dante Pettis scored, and then Coleman scored, and then late in the third when Ahmed scored. You and I were talking, and it was kind of the gist of it was, has Oregon given up? Yeah. And I kind of got that feeling in the third quarter that this team might have rolled over and died. Um, Just wanting to get this game over with, get out of the rain, it was freezing cold, Yeah. Uh, go home, you know, the, there was no chance of them coming back at that point, um, but to Oregon's credit and to something that Taggart talked about post-game was, after that third quarter was over, Taggart talked about how he, he huddled his team up on the sideline and have had some very passionate words, we'll say, right. uh, to his team. And he said afterwards, it was challenging his team not to not to quit, not to you know keep their heads up. This is all about rebuilding. You know, this is this is the job of a rebuild. Right. These types of games, these types of situations. And I think in the fourth quarter, while Oregon clearly wasn't the better team, the effort was better. And not, if you want to take anything away from that second half, it was late in the game. The Huskies got inside the five yard line. They got to the one on fourth down, and instead of taking a knee maybe and just, you know, hey, we don't want to run the score up, or kicking a field goal, um, they chose to run the football. And, and that's probably the correct call to make because you give the defense an opportunity to, to stop you, and at the same time you're not just conceding as well, even though you're up uh, by 35 points. But Oregon stopped him. Jimmy Swain, a senior, a guy who... You know, to this point in his career, probably hasn't had the year, you know, the career he right. envisioned, especially this season, considering how he finished the last half of the year for the Ducks as the second leading tackler for the team. Um, and they, they finished off the drive. They didn't let the touchdown happen. You know, 45 to, th- to 3 looks a hell of a lot worse than 38 to 3. I mean, we're, we're putting pi- uh, lipstick on a pig here, but. Yeah. The little things that matters, and then, you know, I, I was kind of I was impressed with that. You know, we got we got to see Darian Felix finish the game at running back. Get, you know, get some important carries, some seasoning for him. Um, but this was a tough loss, and I think that was reflective in Taggart uh, and what he said with Oregon uh, following the game. He's usually very upbeat, win or loss. He was not that tonight. He was you know, pretty subdued. For his, for his standpoint, I think you know the losses are starting to, to take their toll on this team. Um, the frustration is certainly there with the offense and their inability to execute. And you know, talking with the players, Jake Breland in particular, you know, he was not trying to talk negatively about Braxton Burmeister, but he was also very honest, just about, look, we can't throw the football. 
and it's very frustrating and it, it makes things very difficult for this offense and we're seeing that play out right now yeah it's it's a, it's challenging to expect any team to win a football game when you gain 31 yards through the air you don't have a completion of nine yards or more and you're playing a top 12 team that has Elite, a, a defense, a good defense. A very good defense. And, and we mentioned it earlier, Oregon ran for 247 yards, which was about twice as much as Washington allowed anybody to run for all season. And I think Royce Freeman, like I said, is the first 100-yard rusher. But you can't expect to win games when there's no threat of a passing attack, and that certainly was the case once again. And at a certain point, I think we've seen this recently, and, and part of the reason why Oregon has failed to score a point in the second half in four to five games without Justin Herbert is that teams start recognizing – there's no passing threat, and they load up the box. And I think Oregon gained like 115 yards after those first two drives of the game. You know, those first two drives of the game, Oregon moves it right down the field, then pretty much only on the ground. And I think at a certain point, Washington, like a lot of teams have noticed, is hey, they literally can't throw the football, yep. and they load up the box. And you know, Oregon has some success running it, but nowhere near as much as they did early. And, and it it takes a toll, and, and you can see the frustration mount, especially when there are short screen passes that aren't being completed and there are interceptions on routes that are wide open and and, you know it's it's a challenge and Oregon fortunately runs into a bye week right now which is probably about the best thing that could have happened and and frankly if you're Oregon you would have liked to have had it happen about three weeks earlier Um, but now a chance to regroup Justin Herbert who we haven't mentioned all all night so far but thought there was a chance he might play kind of coming into this game Taggart shut that down. Did did not play. Taggart said he wasn't close to playing. He wasn't even close. Was was the was the words he chose, which was maybe a little surprising. We saw him in practice this week take first and second team reps at times. So he did. He was dressed. He he was in uniform. It looked like there was a chance he'd play, but he did not play. And Taggart said he's hoping that he's back in two weeks when they play Arizona. Um, obviously, that's best case scenario. But this bye week comes at a great time. You know, if they can. Some you know maintain a positive outlook with two games to go and a five and five record. There's a chance they finish with two wins. They go into the bowl season with an opportunity to win eight games this season. I think you you take that as a victory. Um, and and let's remember coming in, I don't think certainly we didn't expect Oregon to win this game. Right. Um, and I don't think a lot of people did. I mean, I, I on Twitter I asked before the game what's people's confidence level, and I don't think anybody said it was very high. Um, so. Oregon wasn't expected to win this game. It was sure was it. It was certainly ugly, um, but this doesn't change kind of the trajectory of trajectory of where we think the season could be going if they're able to, like we said, regroup this week, come back and, and win two football games at home um, to finish off the regular season. We want to find silver linings in this loss. If there are any, if that matters to you, it's they basically cut the score in half last season. Right. They didn't score as many points, uh, but. I think the bigger issue for Oregon last year in that 70 to 20 loss was that Huskies put up 70 points. They put up 38. And they had an offense, they had a special teams touchdown. They had an offensive touchdown that came basically at inside Oregon territory, started in inside Oregon territory. Yeah. Um, and then they had another one that very late in the, in the third quarter that was a one place, you know, one place score that started around the 40 yard line of Oregon, of Oregon's field. And so, you know, the defense played, all things considered, because this is a team game and, you know, it's incredibly difficult, even for the Alabamas of the world, 
to ask your defense to go out game in game out and drive in drive out and basically score points for your for your offense and pitch a shutout essentially you know Oregon's defense they didn't play bad they didn't play great they played better than what they did last last year there was marked improvement yeah um I thought you know at least early on until Oregon got behind because of some you know miscues uh special teams miscue and then again the offense you know the offense having a fumble on we didn't even mention the fumble from Burmeister on third and inches yeah. uh, which well, was which was set up by a Rice Freeman running needing seven yards and it looked like he got eight but the referee spotted him for six and a half which set up a third and one inside the the Oregon 15 and Burmeister fumbled the snap and couldn't really get the ball to Freeman on the handoff to get the half a yard that they needed to get a first down and so they had to punt and two plays there they scored you know the little things like that came up um, but for the most part, early on, Oregon's offensive line was manhandling. We, we said it during the game. Yeah. They were manhandling UW's front seven. Uh, that was very positive. Um, and then on top of that, the quit. They quit against UW last year. That didn't happen this season. Um, but like you said, they go into now a bye week, a much needed bye week. You know, Troy Dye is dinged up. Uh, yeah, we should give updates on those guys, yeah, I think. Taggart said on Saturday uh, following the game that. Troy Dye has a sprained Achilles. He was in a left boot uh, and, and in street clothes uh, in the fourth quarter of this game. And then Kenai Benoit in the first quarter never returned uh, with a shin injury or an ankle injury. Yeah, it's an ankle. ankle injury against uh, the Huskies. And, you know, this is where the depth at running back comes in, into play for Oregon. We saw Tony Brooks James get more carries than normal. We saw Darian Felix get in. But the, the Troy Dye one's concerning. Um, that could be monumental for this defense because he's the best player and it's at a position with no depth. Yeah, and, and Tiger was quick to say he'll be fine. Um, again, fortunately, there's a bye week, but Achilles injuries typically are not injuries you want to mess around with. I yep. mean, people go down with Achilles injuries and, and typically miss extensive parts of the season. The fact that he did say was strained and you know not ruptured is obviously a good sign, but you you have to be kind of a little bit concerned about hearing that from, you know, the defensive leader and, and arguably maybe the best player on the team. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see kind of what the outlook looks like going forward. I think Benoit with an ankle injury, unless it's a, a high ankle sprain, you can expect him to return probably this regular season, maybe against Oregon State. Uh, but those are certainly key players going down with injury. Um, I want to. I do want to say Jimmy Swain. I don't know if he played fantastic, but he did have 13 tackles, which is I'm, I'm pretty sure a, a career high, high by a pretty ext- you know large margin. Um, Oregon didn't. A couple stats off the top of head here. Uh, Oregon did not sack Jake Browning, which I believe is the first time all season they have not sacked the quarterback. Um, I think they're averaging about four sacks a game, so that was a little bit disconcerting because Washington actually hasn't been that great at protecting Browning um, this season, and then mentioned it early, just the, the lack of a passing attack. Four different receivers have catches, but none have more than, I think, a nine-yard completion. A couple stats from this game worth noting, or more of notebook-type things. Uh, Freeman eclipsed the 100-yard rushing mark for the 29th time in his career, extending his U of O record. Uh, to, he, he did a 24 attempts for 122 yards, moving him into 11th place all-time in FBS history with 5,364 uh, career rushing yards. Uh, like you said, Jimmy Swain had a career high 13 tackles. Uh, it was the most tackles by an Oregon player this season. Yep. Uh, 
Oregon, Oregon's Drive. Uh, other stats to look at: uh, Brady Breeze made his first interception of his Oregon career. Came in the, in the second quarter. Uh, the fifth conference defeat eliminates the Ducks from contention in the Pac North, Pac-12 North division. <laughs> oh gosh, thank you uh, for clearing that up for us, Matt. <laughs> I mean, if there was any concern on, on hey, that, can I mention one thing on the Breeze thing? Because I did forget that, and a couple guys talked about that in post game um, about how they thought that that interception, which was right before the half. Um, was possibly going to be a momentum-shifting play. Oregon got the ball, was held, but kind of felt like, hey, it, it curbed Washington's momentum. Washington at that point had scored 17 unanswered. And then they just kind of universally agreed that they didn't make anywhere near enough plays to, to make it mean much. Uh, we also have Charles Nelson had a team-high four receptions, moving into a tie with Lou Barnes and Scott and Greg Spike for 16th on Yubo's career list with 117 catches. Uh, Schneider connected on his 47th field goal of his career, now just two behind Jared Siegel, uh, who has 49 career-made field goals for most in school history. So that's a possible stat to watch for a senior who's got two more games guaranteed, maybe three if they can get to a bowl game. And then uh, the ugly stuff here is uh, Oregon's three points was its fewest points in a game since being shut out 16-0 at UCLA November 24th in 2007. And if uh, Duck fans... Don't remember that game. I wouldn't. Yeah, don't I wouldn't, look that one up. I wouldn't blame you. That's the game when uh, Ryan Leaf got knocked out early at UCLA. Cody Kemp had to come in, and I think Oregon mustered just like like 180 yards or something like that in yeah, in the complete game. Justin Roper finished that game. Yeah, it was not. It was not pretty. Uh, this was also the first time since uh, that same game that the Ducks failed to score a touchdown. So it's it's been a long time since uh, Oregon's had a game where. They ended up not scoring uh, a touchdown. Then this is, uh, if you want some positive spin, this yeah, is from, let's do it. This is from the U of O. Uh, Oregon has won 17 of the last 23 meetings in the rivalry, dating back to 1994. Oh, well, there you go. Oregon <laughs> dominating the rivalry once again. <laughs> and then uh, this is the fifth game. I I think we have to mention it. Um, it's kind of beating a record here, but or a dead horse. But uh, fifth game this season that Oregon has failed to score any kind of points in the second half. Uh, that, to me, is a bigger concern than Burmeister stuff. Um, and then one other note uh, before we start to wrap things up here is, um, ironically enough, uh, Jacob Brillen, a guy who has great chemistry on the field with uh, Justin Herbert, probably one of Justin Herbert's closer friends, too, on off the field, he said afterwards... Uh, it's up to the doctors and it's up to Justin Herbert, uh, but based on what he's seen, based on what he's talked to with, with Herbert, he's expecting him back for the Arizona game. Herbert, obviously we can't talk to him, so we don't know for sure. Taggart himself said he's unsure. He hopes. He thinks it'd be really, really nice. <laughs> I think it'd be really nice, too. I think there are a lot of people that would agree that it would be very nice if he was playing. Uh, but... There's at least a couple guys on the team who, who are starting to say now that you know Herbert's probably going to be back uh, for the Utah for the for the Arizona game, uh, which is November 18th, second to last game of the season. Obviously, the Beavers are also at home uh, to close out the Civil War in the 2017 regular season. Ducks need to just win one of those two uh, to get to a bowl game. 
and finish the year with six or, or more wins. Like you said, they could get seven regular season wins and win their, win their uh, bowl game if they can get to it and have a chance at winning eight. Uh, and, and going into the year, I projected Oregon going eight and four. Um, that was without Justin Herbert getting hurt and missing what his fifth his fifth five games this season he's missed five games um and so you find a way to to win eight games and your most important player i don't know if i think it's arguable you know that you can make an argument that justin herbert's probably the best player but he's for sure certainly the most important important. um and you find a way to still win eight there's a lot of positive in that you can make a strange case that Justin Herbert should have consideration for Pac-12's most valuable player this year just because they went from being uh, first nationally in scoring in games he played to now averaging, I believe, 12 points a game in and games that's in, he has not. And that's, and that's inflated from the Utah game right. because against Washington State where they scored 10. It was 10, 14, and 17, I think, in the three games prior to this, and then they scored three tonight. So and they, uh, it has not been pretty uh, without Justin Herbert, but like we said, we, there seems to be optimism he'll be back, and you just kind of wonder what that will look like, you know, how how much rust is there to, to you know, kind of scrape off, having missed what will end up being about seven weeks of, of game action, and, and unfortunately for Oregon, they face Arizona, who is right in the midst of that Pac-12 South uh, championship kind of competition, kind of unexpectedly. Khalil Tate's putting up video game numbers, and they lost tonight, but they I think they came back from down 22 points in the fourth quarter and, and had a chance to win late. They're certainly not going to be the walkover game that I think either of us expected when, yep. we, were, when we were predicting the, the schedule this season. I think we both kind of had Oregon beating Arizona and Oregon State kind of at the end of the schedule's kind of two virtual locks, and I think that certainly doesn't feel the case now. I think Arizona's probably a chance Arizona, depending on what they do next week against Oregon State, could be favored coming to Hudson Stadium in a couple weeks. Uh, certainly, Washington State was a couple, couple weeks ago, and I think at this point, I would say Arizona's every bit as good as Washington State. Yeah. Uh, that's going to do it for us, but real quick, I guess, since we're going to get this up Sunday morning, Yeah. Um, for a recruiting perspective... And good news. Yeah. They're... Yeah, let's end on a positive note. <laughs> How does that sound, Matt? Uh, we will put Oregon on Quack Watch. Uh, it's... A commitment from a 2020 prospect, so it's still a ways out. But I think this is just a another example of how this new coaching staff is completely changing the game, at least for this program. It, you know, it's pretty common at some of the bigger schools uh, to to be in this position, but at Oregon, it's been it's pretty it's unprecedented where Oregon has an opportunity and the likelihood of landing a verbal commitment in the 2020 class. So if you're counting at home, that means uh, that's a sophomore right now in high school. Um, Donovan Moore has come out and announced uh, Saturday afternoon before the game that he was planning on a Sunday afternoon verbal commitment. Uh, he's currently unranked out of Georgia and IMG College in Florida. He's from Georgia, but he attends high school at IMG Um He's got multiple scholarship offers from SEC schools, uh, ACC schools, SEC schools, uh, Big 12. I think he's got a couple Pac-12s besides Oregon off the top of my head as well. Um, it's crazy to think because he's, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, you know, most sophomores didn't have scholarship offers. But the way today plays out, uh, recruiting has ramped up a little bit with the early signing period and 
um, that's kind of spilled over into earlier scholarship offers being made. And this is a guy that early on, uh, he's a receiver, slot guy, kind of like a DeAnthony Thomas type. Um, yeah. A lot of big, big-time programs have thrown offers in. And um, our hunch, our feeling right now is Oregon's in a really good spot. And, and if, I think the one thing that you can take away from this is this maybe puts worries about Taggart's consideration of other jobs at ease. He's out there still recruiting, obviously, and landing um, verbal commitments from players that are not only from this class but from class down the road. So, and he's doing it, and it's not like it's an in-state kid. Right. This is a kid from all the way across the country. So I, I, I think some positives to take away from that. We've, like we said, watch. I've watched his tape. He reminds me a little bit of DeAnthony Thomas. He's really, really quick. Still, I mean, this again, this is a 15-year-old kid, but he's still, he's like 5'8", 150 pounds, so you right. don't know exactly what he's projecting to in a couple of years, but uh, certainly a very dynamic player with the ball in the open field, and someone that, frankly, I think, if he does end up um, picking Oregon and then ended up signing Oregon, because that's still down the road, there's a lot of factors to, you know, to kind of deal with there, but a guy that Oregon fans will have a heck of a lot of fun watching. Yeah, you, and it doesn't just end with George, with uh, Donovan Moore, there's a ton of 2020 kids and a ton of 2019 kids, 2019 being juniors, um, that are extremely high on Oregon right now, and Oregon's in a really good position. They've already got two verbal commitments in a 2019 class. Uh, there's a couple other players uh, that, if things were you know crazy enough to end in their recruiting process today, they would probably be picking Oregon as well. So it's it's not you know we don't know for sure with Donovan Moore. Um, we're we're you know, based on what we're hearing, based on what we've gleaned from him, yeah. um, we would say the Ducks are probably the favorite here in this position. Um, things are pointing up, but you know, this is recruiting. Things always change. You know, there's always that loop that you're not expecting that you know you get tossed for, and um, maybe more surprises some people. But we're expecting him to commit to Oregon on Sunday. Um, but like you said, there's a lot of guys out there that are underclassmen that are that are on. Uh, high on Oregon right now and um, one other thing we should also note before we get off is uh, we checked around with 2018 commits when the uh, Florida news broke out earlier this week about Florida and Willie Taggart and every one of them basically got back to us and said there's very minimal uh, concern with Taggart and him leaving for Florida uh, obviously they said if if things change that could you know, impact their recruitment, but it, you know, from, from their conversations with their position coaches and their their conversations with Taggart, uh, none of the recruits right now are, are are under the belief that there's any chance that Taggart leaves. Certainly, encouraging news coming kind of straight from the source there about maybe the outlook of a decision from Taggart coming forward. Yep, uh, that's going to do it for us. Uh, go to DuckTerritory.com for your post game coverage, uh, and also you know it's a bye week. So we'll have, but we'll still have practice on Monday, and we'll still have practice on Tuesday. Um, that gives us some time also to start gearing up for Oregon basketball. Yeah. We'll we'll preview the Oregon basketball season uh, later this week, uh, and then we'll hit, hit some recruiting news as well later in the week. And then on top of that, uh, the Ducks are preparing for Arizona in two weeks at home, November eighteenth, uh, looking to get their sixth win. They got to get one win in the next two games to get to a bowl game. Uh, looking like. There's going to be multiple options for for bowl options if they can get to that sixth win. It could yeah. be Vegas. It could be the San Francisco Bowl. I can't remember the name. If it's the Foster Farms Bowl now or 
whatever it is. Uh, there's also the Insight Bowl in Phoenix, uh, which is the day after Christmas, which we're, we're hoping they don't get to. Um, and there's also the at-large options as well. So uh, plenty of storylines to follow, even though there's a bye week uh, coming up. So go to DuckTerritory.com uh, for your Oregon football coverage, Oregon basketball coverage needs, recruiting needs. Oh, and on top of that, we forgot, uh, basketball signing day is... Coming up, going on right now. <laughs> coming up this week, and uh, we'll have some stuff on Five Star Bull Bull and R.J. Barrett and other prospects Oregon's going after on the site as well. So uh, make sure to go to DuckTerritory.com. Like us on Facebook at Facebook uh, slash Oregon247. And you can also find this podcast on iTunes by searching for the Duck Territory Podcast. And until we talk to you sometime this week, we will be not in a car. Uh, but we will talk to you sometime soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. See you guys.